What's up, what's up, Transit Church? Happy Easter to you. He is risen. All right, there's only a few of us in here, but I'm assuming there's several of you out there, and I know you got it, right? I know you got it down. When you say, when I say, he is risen, your reply should be, he is risen indeed. So let's try that again. Happy Easter, Transit Church. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, happy Easter, uh, good Resurrection Day to you. We're glad that you're joining us. Uh, if you're just tuning in to, uh, to us and you're not a, a member, a regular tender of Transit Church, or if you have not even been uh, with us as we've been uh, streaming online, my name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor for the Transit Church, and we are glad to have you with us this morning, particularly today on Easter. Uh, we've been in Luke's Gospel this Easter season, and we've been looking at the theme of the greatest story ever told. And that really is what Easter is. Uh, three days ago, on Good Friday, we read the story, saw the enactment of Jesus dying, of, of being executed brutally and then crucified on the cross as he uh, was pinned to that cross uh, for our sake and not his own. As we cross over into Luke 24 this morning, it tells a story of, of the resurrection, that Jesus gets up out of the grave. Though he's been crucified, God raises him up to life. And in our text, we pick up the story as Jesus appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and later he even eats with them. Interestingly, they don't understand what's going on. They don't even recognize him. And so this is somewhat of a mystery, a mysterious encounter that, they, that I hope we can learn from on this Resurrection Sunday. So we're going to read together Luke 24, verses 13 to 27. Uh, break your Bibles out. I believe the words will also be on the screen, uh, as you can see there with, uh, as we read along together. So starting in verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened these, there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for the, a new day. Thank you for this Resurrection Sunday. As we turn to your word, God, we pray that you would illumine your word so that we can see and hear all that you would have for us 
today. God, we hope that we would see the good news of Jesus, that we would see him resurrected and in his glory. More than that, God, would you make room in our hearts that we might not just see but receive this Jesus today. From wherever we are, Lord, scattered as a church but gathered by the Spirit, God, would you speak to us? Your servants are listening. I pray to that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable to you as we lift these things up to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. So in our text, Jesus has already been crucified. He's risen from the dead, and he shows up on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus is a small town just outside of Jerusalem. The text says about seven miles from Jerusalem, and two disciples are walking along, and Jesus joins them. Actually, I think he just like inserts himself into whatever they're, whatever they got going on. We're told uh, that one of the disciples' names was Cleopas. Uh, the other is not given. Some commentators would actually say that it probably was his wife, but the text doesn't tell us that. So we're just going to call them two disciples walking along the road, the seven-mile stretch to, to Jerusalem. And as they're walking along, Jesus comes up next to them, and he kind of involves himself in, in their conversation. We don't know Jesus' disposition. We don't know what clothes he had on. Uh, perhaps Jesus came up with a hoodie on. He had it like flipped over and he was like in disguise. Maybe he's in his glorified state. He's, his, his persona has so changed that they just can't recognize him. But for whatever reason, they actually don't know it's Jesus that's walking along with them. And in the midst of their walk, in the midst of their talk, Jesus interrupts them, and he just says, well, what are you, what are you two talking about? And they look at him, probably kind of stupefied, and they say, like, well, where have you been? Uh, we're talking about what everybody's talking about. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, remember Jesus? Have you not heard of Jesus of Nazareth, the one that we thought was going to be the promised Messiah, but, the, but he was turned over to the Romans by the, by the religious leaders, and they crucified him. Now he's died. I mean, we don't know what's going on. We're confused. But what makes more confusing is some of the women from our camp have said that they've gone to the grave and he wasn't there. And so Jesus, right there in the midst of the road, probably stops these two disciples, and he looks at them, probably puts his hand on one of their shoulders and says, you don't understand the scriptures. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, I want us to look at really two things from our text Two things, the first being that Jesus is the Messiah of the Bible. That's what Luke is portraying to us and as he closes out his record of the account of, of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah of the Bible. And the second thing that we see towards the end of our text is that Jesus is a friend at the table. Jesus is the Messiah of the Bible. Jesus is a friend at the table. Firstly, looking at Jesus is the Messiah of the Bible, it would make sense that these disciples were acquainted with Jesus. You know, more than likely, they had been following Jesus for almost all of his, his earthly ministry, perhaps even uh, close to three years. They're not one of the 12. We know that. But they likely were a part of the larger group that had followed Jesus. And so they had been with Jesus. They had served with Jesus. They had believed in Jesus. And so they, they understood, at least kind of, who he was, but it's apparent that they're also missing some of the pieces. 
And there's a couple of verses I want to, to highlight for us. Firstly, you see in verse 17, they're walking along. Look down in your Bibles. It's not going to be on the screen. They're walking along. They're having a conversation, and they're sad. They're sullen. They've got sorrow. They're, they're expressing grief and lament. It's, it's not just in their disposition. It's in their actual voices, and Jesus can detect that. And we find out why later on in verse 21 they say, well, we thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And then again in verse 22 and 24, they say that, well, these, these women, the women that were part of our, our gathering, the, the women that were, were following with us all these days, they went to the tomb, and he wasn't there anymore. And so you have, they have some of the information that suggests that Jesus has risen from the dead, but they just don't know what to do with it. Here's what Luke writes in verse 25 and 20 to 27. Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then Jesus embarks on what I would call the greatest Bible study that's ever been had in all of antiquity. Do you know anybody that, that kind of uses superlatives all the time? The best of that, the greatest that, the funnest that. I think we're all prone to use superlatives every once in a while. I think that's one of the things that we pick up in middle school. Like, uh, that was the best meal I've ever had, talking about McDonald's. That was my absolute favorite, dot, dot, dot. Or that, that movie was the greatest that I've ever seen. You're my bestest friend ever. BFF and all that. I think we picked that up in middle school and it just sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Uh, I've got a, I, I, I'm one that uses superlatives. I try not to use them too much, but I do use them. Uh, here's uh, here's a, an example of a superlative that I've used that stuck with me for all of my life. Uh, so... I went from high school to West Point, West Point to the United States Army, beginning my career as, an, uh, as, a, as, a, as a lieutenant in the field artillery. I got a chance to go to Ranger School, U.S. Army Ranger School. Ranger School is a leadership school that uses simulated combat to assess your leadership capacity in those kind of environments. Four different phases of Ranger School, at least 30 years ago, there were four different phases. The second phase is in the mountains of Dahlonega, Georgia. It was, it was December, so it was kind of cold. Uh, Ranger, the, the phases of Ranger School, uh, each one is about 15 or so days, and so you're in that environment learning how to operate as a soldier in, those, in that environment, and then they test you test you with patrols and uh, ambushes and raids and all those kinds of things. And so the first five days of our time in Dahlonega, we could stay in the barracks, and we also get to eat in the dining facility one meal a day. It was breakfast. So what's famous about Dahlonega in Ranger School is you get blueberry pancakes. Guess what? I love pancakes. I don't like blueberries. I've sort of adjusted to blueberries now, but like blueberry can kind of ruin a pancake. So this is what I would do. I don't know why they did this, I don't know when they started doing it, but in ranger school in Dahlonega in the mountain phase, they used to give the ranger students a gob of peanut butter, just a spoon with a gob of peanut butter on it. Now, of course, I'm no stranger to peanut butter. I've eaten peanut butter all my life, and up to that point, peanut butter was just good. I like peanut butter with a little bit of jelly. In ranger school, Dahlonega, I would exchange my blueberry pancakes 
for a gob of peanut butter. I would get other people's gobs of peanut butter and give them my pancakes. Up to that point, peanut butter was just good. From that point on in Ranger School, I have loved peanut butter. In fact, peanut butter was like my bestest food at that point in Ranger School. To this day, I love peanut butter. Of course, back then, I was just probably hungry. But it stuck with me. So here's, here's what's going on when we're using superlatives. Like, I love peanut butter, and I actually do love peanut butter. We're trying to convey something that's worth bragging about, or something that's important to us, something that's important to us such that we want to share it with, with anybody and everybody that, that we see. Have you ever given any thought to what might be a superlative about the Bible? Like, what is the, the, the bestest, most like, wonderful Bible study ever? We actually don't have to think about it. We don't have to wonder about it. It's right here. Jesus on this road with these two disciples. I mean, this is the best, most revelatory, awe-inspiring small group Bible study that's ever happened. Ever. Jesus kind of abruptly tells these disciples, you know, you guys don't understand the scriptures. It's right here in plain English for you, plain, plain, plain Hebrew and Aramaic. And beginning with Moses... That means he starts in Genesis, Moses writing the first five books of the Bible, and then Jesus walks through all the way through the prophets to unpack what the scriptures say about himself. And so in Genesis, he would have started with, with creation. And when he, would have, he would have talked about the, the six days of creation and what God did and why he did it, and on the seventh day, God rested. And I'm sure he would have paused in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, doing what God said not to do. But instead of focusing on the sin, he would have highlighted Genesis 3.15, where it says that the, the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then he would have told them, you know what? That's what I did yesterday. That's what I did this morning on the cross when I, when I arose when I was victorious over death, hell, and the grave, I crushed Satan, crushed him. And then he would have went on to talk about the patriarchal family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and, and Joseph. And he would have explained how God takes this, this insignificant family and grows them into a whole people who God will eventually call to himself. It's a foreshadow of the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of which Jesus is the king over. God's people in God's place with God ruling over them. And then he would have unpacked the story of the Exodus, of how God, through the miracles of Moses, used that, that leader to, to deliver Israel from, uh, from 430 years of slavery out of Egypt. And he would have said, you know, we brag about Moses and the Exodus, but hey, there's a greater Exodus going on right here, and I'm the one leading it. I've, I've resurrected from the grave. Not only that, I'm leading a whole host of people to their own deliverance. And then he would have gone to the laws and the commands in Leviticus and showed how that all these laws weren't just rules and moral obligations for us to follow, but they were more so giving us God's character and how God, through the scriptures, were, were 
telling us, here's the most important thing, that you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would say these very words, and then he would expound on the Psalms and so how they pointed to him, and Jesus then would explain the prophets and said, you know what, all the prophets were pretty cool people. I know them, you know, from Moses all the way to Malachi, but guess what? I'm the best prophet that's ever been. I'm the one that's mediating between you and God. I'm the one that's, that's, that's representing you to God and God to you. And in all this, he unpacks how all of this is directly about him. This would have been the definitive explanation of the complete Old Testament, of all the scriptures. This is the best Bible study ever. All the promises, all the stories, all the images found their fulfillment in Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus, which means Jesus is the point of the Bible. I don't know if any of you all out there are in sales. If you're in sales, then then you have your, your elevator speech. You guys know what that is? It's like you have to be, you have to have the ability, like a can thing that you're gonna say to get something over to someone so that you might convince them to 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 buy in, to uh, buy what you're what you're presenting. And so if you're a Christian, part of your elevator pitch is the, is the question of, you know, what, what is the Bible about? And I'm, do you know the answer to that? What is the Bible about? How would we answer that? Here's our elevator pitch. The Bible's about Jesus, right? From, from cover to cover, the Bible's about Jesus. It's not a reference book. It's not a book of moral examples to live up to. It's not a list of to-dos. It's about Jesus, it's about a single true story with a plot line. That plot line is, is creation, that God created the world and everything was good and he put man in it. It's about the fall of how God said to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day that you do that, you're going to die. And Adam and Eve does that. But God still has enacts a plan of redemption to right all the wrongs done by man. And so it's a story of redemption that goes through the resurrection and ultimately it's a story of consummation where God says, as it was in the beginning, I'm gonna take us to the end. It'll be God's people in God's place under God's rule forever and ever, amen. It's a story about grace and about rescue. God giving us what we don't deserve. God delivering us from ourselves and from our sin. It's about how Jesus saves a people by incarnating into our world, living our life, and willingly, submissively dying on the cross to pay for our sins. And here's what we learned on Resurrection Day. God raised him up as a first fruits of what he'll also do with us as we put our faith in him. You know, we don't actually know what scripture verses that Jesus turned to in the Old Testament as he's uh, walking along the road to Emmaus with these disciples. We don't know what specific verses he used. We don't know what specific passages in the Old Testament he goes to. We don't know the examples that he used. We don't know what the Bible characters he highlights the most accurately served to typify who he was. So I can't stand up here and say this is exactly what he said. I can't replicate Jesus' exact conversation with these disciples. But I think what Sinclair Ferguson writes in his book, Preaching Christ, from the Old Testament comes very close. And Claire Ferguson, y'all know Pastor Nick and I, pretty much every sermon we're quoting Sinclair Ferguson. And it's not because like he's the end all be all, he's a theologian, but he's also a pastor. And so he just writes very clearly. In this case, in this, uh, in this book, Preaching Christ from the Old Testament, what Sinclair Ferguson rightly does is he helps us see who Jesus is from cover to cover in our Bibles. Look at what he says, listen to what he says. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam, 
who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is now imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain is now has slain has uh, blood now that cries out for our acquittal, not for our condemnation, but for our justice. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable, familiar home and go out into the void, not knowing where he went to create a people, a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered by his father, but sacrificed by his father. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your only son whom you love from me. Now we can say to God, now we know you love us because you did not withhold your only begotten son from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is a true and better Joseph, who's at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is a true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is a true and better rock of Moses who struck the rod with God, who struck with the rod of God's justice and now gives us water in the desert. Not only that, Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for us and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, even though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk losing life, but it cost his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who is cast out in the storm in the deep so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. And now... Today, Resurrection Day, Jesus is the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king. He's the true temple. He's the true sacrifice. He's the true lamb, the true light. He's the true bread. Isn't that good? And so here's here's the point of what Sinclair Ferguson is trying to convey, but more importantly, what Jesus is saying to these two disciples as he's traveling down the road to uh, the road to Emmaus. He's saying, I'm the point. Jesus is the point. He's the point of the Bible. That's what this book is about. That's what the resurrection proves. That's what Jesus is talking about on the road to Emmaus, post-resurrection. It's the reason why he came, the purpose of his life, his death on the cross, how it all fits together. It's the greatest story ever told. And that's why only a couple verses down in verse 32, uh, the, the scriptures will say, it made their hearts burn. Like Jesus is talking to them. He's unpacking the scriptures. He's explaining everything going on. It's like, oh, my God, I can't I can't hold on to all this stuff. It's just too it's too good. It's this rising melody in their hearts that what they had experienced for three years following Jesus, what they were hearing and believing at that very moment. It was absolutely true that the good news, the good news of Jesus, the gospel of his life, of his death and of his resurrection. It was true. And little by little. This what's going on. They're beginning to see it. Lights are coming on. I think with Jesus' explanation of the scriptures, 
They were able to see that God is the, the great author of the story. See, he's always superintending over, over his creation, over all that he's made, but also superintending over our lives. This God that loves sinners so much that he became one of us in the person of Jesus, and he literally comes into our stories. That's what our God is like, and that should make our hearts burn within us too. Here's the second point. First point, Jesus is the Messiah of the Bible. And and here's what Luke interestingly ends his gospel with. Jesus is a friend at the table. Look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. But when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So all the pieces that Jesus could be, uh, of all the places that Jesus could be after the resurrection from the dead, he's in Emmaus. This kind of no, like, no-nothing, nobody town. And of all the people that he could have appeared to firstly, he appears to two disciples, and it would be wrong to say they're no, like nobody kind of people, but I mean, we don't even have uh, references of them from the other parts of the story of Jesus' life. We don't even know, but we only know one name. The other person goes unknown. These two disciples beg Jesus to stay with them, and, and he does. Verse 30 and 31 are, are, are interesting. They invite Jesus to share a meal with him. And while he's enjoying this meal, he mimics a, a familiar ritual. He takes bread and blesses it and, and breaks it and he shares it with them. And here's what the text says. Their eyes were opened. Like something happened in their spirits and immediately they recognized him. And then, of course, he vanishes from their sight. Can you imagine this, this scene with these two disciples? Well, I mean, what is, what is Jesus doing in this post-resurrection moment? Honestly, I think he's doing the very same thing he's done all along in his ministry. Firstly, he's having a meal with sinners. And hasn't Jesus done that over and over again through all the stories of Scripture? Think about John 3. He celebrates a wedding with a young couple, and when their wine runs out, he makes more wine. He, he makes the best wine, and they recognize that. Oh, you're a great host. You serve the best wine last. Jesus made that wine, right? John 4, Jesus drinks water. Actually, he has her pour water, pull water from a spring for her with the woman at the well who's had four husbands. And prophetically, he knows that she's living with a man currently who was not her husband. He enjoys fellowship with tax collectors. He's chastised about that by the religious leaders. Are you going to hang out with, with guys who like who prey on Jewish people by taking their money and giving to the Romans and taking some for themselves. How are you going to do that? He takes a few pieces of fish. He does this multiple times. He takes pieces of fish and a loaf of bread 
And he multiplies it to feed thousands and thousands of people. Think about all the times that he's hanging out with the disciples. And one occasion, he's, he's with Peter and some other disciples. And it says that Peter's mother was sick and Jesus healed her. And she's the one that got up and made a meal for them. John 21 will talk about Jesus telling his disciples to go to, to Galilee ahead of him post-resurrection. He's on the coast. He's on the, on the shore there. They're out fishing just to pass the time. They figure out, hey, is Jesus on the shore? What do they do? Peter takes his clothes off, rushes back to shore. Jesus is at a fire already built, and he begins to have a meal with him. And so you have these two disciples who, in the aftermath of Jesus' crucifixion, they're doubting. They're confused. They're sad and grieving over the supposed loss of their good friend. And in this beautiful act of grace, in this, in this kindness of our Savior, he shows them that he's not dead, but very much alive. But more than that, he shows them who he is. He reenacts what undoubtedly they had seen him do before when he fed the, the 4,000, when he fed the 5,000, and they immediately recognized him to be who he was. This has to be a powerful moment. God opens their eyes, and the moment that their eyes are open is when Jesus is befriending sinners at the table. Here's the second thing that we see in this latter part of our text. The second thing Jesus is doing is he's taking these disciples from sadness and discouragement to a place of hope and of joy. And that's what the resurrection does. But, but notice how Jesus does it. He doesn't sing a happy song. He doesn't tell them to get up and dance. He actually begins with scripture. He says, you two don't understand the scriptures. Go back, read so that you'll understand the scriptures. It's been here all along, who I am, what I'm doing, what I'm going to do. And of course, the insinuation is that his resurrection from the grave, undoubtedly the pivotal and most significant event in our Christian faith is also a story within a story. It's a huge moment in a larger story of Scripture. This is what Jesus had put together for these disciples in a seven-mile uh, road trip down the road to, to Jerusalem and a follow-on meal. He's taking people that are unbelieving and sad and discouraged about their lives and their circumstances. He's taking people who are rebellious sinners, people who have expectations that have not been met. And what does Jesus do? He does what he always does. He draws near. He's drawing near to people who are brokenhearted. He's taking them from brokenness and discouragement to hope and joy. And he does that through the resurrection. And that's what Jesus does for all of us. And if you're not yet a, a believer, a follower of Jesus, he can do that for you as well. Here's what John 10 says. It says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. This is what we celebrate on Easter, right? What does it say? It says you will be saved. Would you do that today? Would you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart? Ask God, God, would you give me the gift of faith even now that I would believe what I'm hearing, that I would believe these words in Scripture? And the testimony of Scripture is if you ask this, if you ask it humbly, the Lord will answer your prayer. Here's how our text ends. I'm going to read verse 33 through 35 one more time. 
And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And so these disciples, what do they do? They're so excited. They, they've seen Jesus. They go tell their friends. It's like, hey, we saw Jesus. It's, it's all finally come together. This Jesus, he's not dead. He's risen. He's risen indeed. And not only that, the story, the entire story from Moses, the prophets and beyond has been pointing to him. It's the best story ever told. Let me let me apply this. Just one point of application for us and then uh, we'll be done. If you're tuning in, if you're, if you're lacking hope, if, if you are lacking joy, if you're discouraged, if you're in a hard circumstance, and I mean, honestly, think about us. Like, I'm preaching to an empty room. Well, not empty. There's like seven people here. And you're on the other side. This, this Easter has not gone how many of us wanted it to go. Perhaps some of you are like in your pajamas, sipping coffee, Maybe you're watching this in the bed. Jesus wants us to go back to his word. I think that's what's going on here. This is actually where faith begins. What Jesus is commanding here is to attend to his word, all of it, to to have confidence in his word, to understand the scriptures and believe what it says about him, that it ultimately will lead to our joy. And here's what the resurrection is about. It's a joy that's complete, not three steps to this or that, not go read a book and learn about your your best life now. No, the resurrection is about joy. It's about resurrection joy from darkness to light that remedies our sadness, that covers our grief, that works deep down in our hearts and like goes all the way down to our bones. That's what the resurrection is about. That's what I invite you to. That's what Jesus invites us to. Amen, Transit Church. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're delighted on this Easter. Though we're scattered in our homes and here and there, Lord, we're brought together by the Spirit, and Spirit, we thank you for, your, for the words that remind us, that tell us, that teach us of who Jesus is and what he's done. Lord, I pray that your word would have the effect that you deem it to have over your people. God, that you'd reach out and you touch hearts, and ultimately you change us. Like only you can do that. We're grateful for this, the story of Scripture. We thank you for the story of Easter. We thank you for the story of redemption, how you write the things that are wrong in our life. Lord, in this moment, we pray that you plant your word, that you plant your word deep in our hearts, that you plant the gospel, the good news of Jesus deep in our hearts. And that good news would seep from our head, head knowledge into our hearts, and it would begin to to change us. Lord, would you in this moment take all the concerns that we have and and make them trivial and light and compare it to the the glory that's revealed when you got up out of that grave. That's what we celebrate. That's what we revel in today. And though we're in our homes, we haven't been able to get our hair done. We haven't been able to go get a new outfit. We don't have like new flowers on the table. We're not probably going to go out and we can't go out to a restaurant and celebrate like we normally do. 
But God, would you give us uh, a pep in our step and a joy in our hearts because you're alive. You're not dead. You've overcome death, hell, and the grave. And you've done that for us. God, you've done that for us in the person of Jesus. May his praise and his fame come from the hearts and the voices and the praise of his people today. And would you replace these our opportunities to gather and to, to collectively do that? Would you, would you make unique ways for us to talk about the resurrection as we, as we sneak out of our homes and go to the grocery store? Would you give us unique encounters with people that we might tell of the goodness of Jesus? And would you give us opportunities to talk to our neighbors? And as you're doing that, Lord, would you work in our own hearts to shed light on our own hearts, to give us hope and faith that we didn't have yesterday. Give it to us today because of the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.